All right, Husky fans, we have Rafa Miller on the line. This guy is a Washington fan. Uh, would you say Washington fan first, college basketball expert second, or vice versa? I would say a diehard Husky football fan, but uh, I, I do love all college basketball, of course, and, and have the opportunity to cover it nationally. Good question. Awesome. Yeah, so this is Rocco Miller. He knows a ton about Pac-12 hoops, Husky hoops, and national stuff. He's a bracketologist. Um, you do a lot with the Pac-12. Rocco, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, thanks, Trevor. So, yeah, my name is Rocco Miller. I've, I've been uh, focused on bracketology for the better part of the last 10 years. And it started off originally um, as a – Basically, Joe Lenardi inspired this in the late 90s when he introduced the concept of bracketology, which for the listeners who are uh, possibly unfamiliar, it's the uh, art and science of uh, guessing and predicting what the committee is going to do come selection Sunday for the end of college basketball season. And it's really become a phenomenon for fans and media alike to um, basically put their projections out uh, today across you know media networks and websites, et cetera. There's about 200 people doing this. And uh, there's actually a website out there called the Bracket Matrix, for those that don't know, that do a scoring system. And so for the last, you know, eight, nine years, I've uh, been able to get into, like, the top 25 bracketologists nationally, which is based on that scoring system. But um, that really inspired me to get more uh, closer to the game. And um, about four years ago, I joined the United States Writers Association and um, I travel quite a bit for my full-time work, so I decided to start my own independent business within um, not only bracketology, but basketball coverage in general, um, and I've been able to make a lot of connections here in the last few years. So it's been a really exciting run. It just seems to grow um, year over year, and uh, this past year I was able to cover the Pac-12 Media Day, get a chance to meet with every coach in the conference, um, and I'm appearing pretty regularly on a few podcasts every week and, and just look to kind of build this up over time. My ultimate goal is to get on a major network and quit my day job. So we'll just keep charging forward. In the meantime, uh, you know, here to talk hoops. Awesome. Now, as a bracketologist, I really like how you said it's, an, it's a science and it's an art. Because I think the science part of it is the analytical piece where you're looking at matchups, points for, points against, um, when you're really trying to pick those teams on where they go. And is the art maybe where, you know, you, you've decided that Team X is a 12th seed and where they're going to fit in, whether it's in that East, West, Midwest bracket? Um, can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I think I think you're on the right track. I, I think it's actually a little bit uh, – some, some of the art to it is a little bit more simplified. The exercise, and what I try to do every time I do the exercise, it's about a five to seven hour exercise. And essentially, um, when you get into the, the weeds of it all, uh, it, it becomes like a big psychology game and trying to understand what's going on in those, uh, in, in, behind those closed doors in that last week of the season when the, uh, the committee members, these days they fly out to New York, some years they fly to Indianapolis, wherever they may be, but, um, what they're discussing is uh, a comparison of teams. You've got, uh, I believe, 12 committee members and a chairman, and they're voting on uh, a group of teams at a time. So, for example, 
for the number one seeds, there'll be eight teams put on the board that uh, the chairman or whoever's organizing it, it doesn't always have to be the chairman is my understanding, um, and we'll, they'll do a vote, and, and eventually they'll whittle it down to the four number ones. And so what, what I'm doing in my mind is how do you compare these teams? What are the things the committee members and uh, chairman ultimately talk about are the most important factors? And then I'm also comparing that against historical data uh, based on similar resumes from previous years. So there's a lot of um, uh, information and studying that goes into any bracket projection that I put out there based on that. Now, here for preseason purposes, so anybody that has seen my work know that I do a preseason bracket. That's actually just based on a lot of information gathering during the preseason uh, combined with the perceived strength of schedule. Uh, but we all know watching college basketball for uh, years, you're going to have a ton of surprises. It's, the season's only a week old. We've already seen a bunch. For example, Kentucky losing yesterday to Evansville. Um, but a lot of that preseason stuff is based on the same common principles and procedures. And so that's why I call it an art and science because part of this is psychology. The other part is historicals and what they like about resumes, what they don't like about resumes. And that a lot of times will break the tie between which team they like over the next team. I, I, I knew that there was a lot that went into that. How many tabs open do you have when you're going through this five- to seven-hour process on your computer? Great question. So I would say I have – the main, the main thing I have is actually an old-school Excel spreadsheet. I'm an old-school guy, and I keep track of basically – I do kind of a guess-and-check system as the week goes on. Once we get Janu uh, to January and February, I'll do a full five- to seven-hour exercise twice a week. Uh, so that takes place Sunday nights and Thursday nights. So I'll either post my update uh, in time for Monday morning or Friday morning or sometimes late that night, uh, the night before. Um, and – I basically am doing a guess and check on my spreadsheet during the normal uh, rest of the week. Uh, and when I go through the exercise, I've got about four to five different resources where I'm tracking um, all the quadrants. I think some of the listeners are probably familiar by now. There's a, there's a full quadrant system in place. There's also a, a, a deeper breakdown that they announced last year, which is basically quadrant one and two is now broken up into 1A, 1B, 2A, and 2B which essentially just uh, breaks that quad in half. So um, the, if, you, if you have a little bit stronger quad 1A versus 1B and you're pretty much even otherwise with another team, that could be enough to push you above that other team. So um, a, a lot of that data is up. So I, I'll just say like on average four to five different resources. We'll call that four to five tabs. What have you seen as the biggest trend for putting uh, team A over team B? Well, and this is going to be kind of sad, but the, I think the one thing um, that's been humbling the last couple of seasons especially is college basketball, first and foremost, is a business. And the NCAA tournament each year, you know, generates billions of dollars. The number goes up uh, exponentially each year. And I, th and I tend to think if a team is from a larger con uh, conference, like let's just say the Big Ten, and they've got anywhere between 8 to 12 quality wins, even if they had 22 opportunities. So let's just say they went 8 and 10 in all of their opportunities, uh, under 500 record, but they got the 8 wins. The NCAA committee, it, without looking at the other factors, 
uh, is more prone to put in a team like that than a team that maybe only got like four opportunities like a UNC Greensboro, and they went one and three. But they may have won all the other games they were supposed to win. So um, I tend to personally, uh, my own opinion, favor the mid-major team, but I would never put that in my uh, projections because my projections are intended to guess what the committee is going to do. Um, so, the, so, so I think that's that's a lot of the ways I'll split the tie. Another really big one is a non-conference straight to schedule. Um, if you're within the top 200 teams uh, out of 353, there's a good chance that uh, it's not going to be as critical. But we saw in many cases over the last decade, last year was a big one, um, NC State, who was ranked 33rd in the net rankings, uh, which should be clearly a tournament team based on that alone, had a non-conference strength to schedule number 352, so second to worst in the country. And and that stuck, stood out like a sore thumb, and it was really just one of those things where I, me and a lot of other guys that do what I do kept looking at that, and there's like, there's just no way historically they can put them in. And sure enough, NC State was not even in the last four teams out because uh, they do reveal that now. So that was um, – that's one that you always have to be cognizant of. Another one, too, is you got conferences like the Big 12 where all 10 teams are extremely uh, competitive and e- almost even besides maybe Kansas and Texas Tech at the top. So right. you'll have a situation situation where a team will just pile up too many overall losses. So last year that happened at the University of Texas. Texas had 16 losses. It was just too many to put them in the field. There's only been two examples where a team got 15 losses and actually got in, and and that was because they they had up to 18 wins. I think Texas was 16 and 16, and it was just um, there was no precedent to put them in, even though they had wins over North Carolina, Kansas, Purdue, and others. Um, it, they they just couldn't do it. So there, there's some nuances to it where you know a team in those situations it'd be unprecedented for them to get in, but by and large the other tiebreakers I think I always come back to the fact that it's a business and what makes more sense. You know, you, I, I was really, you piqued my interest a little bit with what you were saying about non-conference, uh, that they heavily look at non-conference, uh, your, the rankings in the non-conference. And I think back, I believe it was 2011 when Washington won the regular season Pac-12, but. Yeah, 2012. Yeah. Was it 2012? Okay. It was, yeah. Uh, what, what, what were some of the factors that you think led them? I know I didn't prepare you for this one, but do you think <laughs> factors on why Washington was left out there? Yeah, well, it was uh, two main factors. So one in the in the non-conference, uh, the Huskies were six and five that year. They had a home loss, a really bad home loss to South Dakota State, um, and they also had a, a couple tough losses to a non-tournament team, Nevada. Uh, that was an overtime loss in Reno and a loss to St. Louis, um, a team that uh, wasn't as strong at the time. And I think just the fact that the Pac, I think the main thing after that, and this has been coming up for the Pac-12 several times in the last handful of years, is, of course, their league just wasn't that strong that year. So for the entire um, 2012 campaign, you know, we only had um, – California got into the Dayton play-in game as the second-place team. Uh, a little bit better non-conference resume than Washington had. That got them there. Uh, Colorado came out of the Pac-12 tournament with the auto bid, so there was only two teams in the in the tournament. And we would 
actually in, in, in my industry, we call that one and a half bids because you're going to Dayton's basically like you got to get in. So we'll, we'll just say that was one and a half bids. And, you know, as upsetting as it was knowing that I'm a Washington guy as well, I could understand their reasoning for it. Uh, I'm not saying I 100% agreed with that decision, but that those were the reasons why they were left out. And and to this day, still the only team to win a major conference in the regular season and not get a bid. Right, and that's kind of what really set me off on that was when you said precedence, because that was breaking precedence. And um, you know, as a as a Huffy Homer, I was upset about it, but. You know, if you if you look at that Washington team, they look like they they should be in the tournament. But I also they get you know losing in the first round to a bad Oregon State team. Um, I I know that there were good arguments about keeping them out as well. Right, that's that's essentially what it came down to. And and I think the thing that you know I have to I, I talk on a lot of different um, shows across the country and different types of people uh, fans of a lot of different schools. And the thing I have to remind everybody, no matter where they're from or, or what their favorite team is, is that this is all about comparing teams within that given season. So there are a lot of years where that Husky team may have comfortably been in, maybe even as a nine or eight seed. Um, but just based on that season and compared to the other at-large teams, no matter how many good teams or how many bad teams there are in a given year, uh, the committee is stuck with a proposition where they have 36 at-large bids to give and uh, 32 automatic bids. And out of those 32 automatic bids, about 22 of them come from conferences that are only going to get one bid. So in the 10 leagues that will get more than one bid, if a team takes one of those 10 that wasn't supposed to get uh, one of the 36 at larges, it can really throw off the math and there'll be some teams left out. If I remember correctly, there were probably two or three of those at least, and we call we call those bid thieves. Um, and that yeah. – you know, all that plays into the final math on why it seems left out or, or in when it comes down to the, uh, a narrow margin like that. So uh, let's switch gears to this year's Washington team. Where do you see them headed? Uh, what's their ceiling? What's their floor? And where do you maybe project them come tournament time? Yeah, so, I mean, I was very thrilled to see the Huskies, of course, win against Baylor. I thought that, I thought the game um, itself – very sloppy in the first half, 15 turnovers, uh, cleaned up a lot in the second half and really drilled down into, you know, getting the ball to Stewart and McDaniels and having everybody else play more supporting roles. Obviously that was effective to get key buckets in crunch time and, and make a big rally to steal that game away from Baylor in a lot of ways. I mean, trailing by as many as 13 in the second half. Um, so that that's going to be big long-term for the resume. Um, I really think Baylor's not going anywhere this year. They'll be one of the – I mean that in a good way. Like, they're not going to leave the top 25 realm. I think they'll be uh, somewhere in the top six seed lines by the end of the season. So that that win is going to carry a lot of weight for the Huskies uh, going through the rest of the campaign. Uh, coming into the year, um, I was concerned a lot about the point guard position, not knowing if Quad A was going to get his waiver approved. Of course, a week before the season started, the new, good news came through, and that really made me bump the Huskies from – closer to a bubble team to more safely in. Uh, so in my preseason bracket, I had them getting a six seed. The interesting thing, thing about this team is if the chemistry can really click, which I don't think they are nearly there yet, especially if you saw the game yesterday, uh, there's a lot to work on, uh, especially offensively. 
Um, I think defensively we can all feel pretty good about the team uh, getting to the right place. But offensively, the, I think there's a, a much higher ceiling than previous years because in previous years you had uh, guys like David Chris, Noah Dickerson, Seibel, Noel was a stud, but they had played together long enough to know that uh, you, you kind of saw what the ceiling would look like. They had a, right. a big a big win two years ago at Kansas. Okay, this is what it looks like when they all come together. But I think if this Washington team with three McDonald's All-American teams, uh, three McDonald's All-Americans, Jamal Bay, um, you know, other key factors like Nas Carter, Cam Wright, there is a lot of just natural talent, NBA-level talent. And if it, if it does come together for the Huskies at the right time, let's say February, March, I think they can get on the kind of roll combined with the uh, the ability to mix uh, man-to-man defense with the 2-3 zone uh, that can give teams from other conferences fits in the tournament. So I think this team is set up really nicely if they can hit that stride at the right time. And I think it's a much higher ceiling than we've seen in previous years. Awesome. What do you – you know, you talked uh, – we talked about 2012 a little bit. We've seen the Pac-12 maligned in – the national uh when it comes to national power five uh conferences where do you think the pac-12 is right now as of 2019 well i mean it was a tremendous week that we just came off of uh probably the best start to a season for the conference since they went to 12 teams uh maybe even going back before that by a long ways uh up until yesterday there was no losses by any teams to a team from another conference of course the only team that had a loss was arizona state but it was to Colorado, so uh, not from another league. Last night we saw the Beavers get beat pretty bad by Oklahoma and the Cougs lost at uh, Santa Clara. Um, but but uh, overall, I think um, coming into the year, I had Arizona, Oregon, Washington, Colorado as tournament teams, and then teams like Arizona State, USC, and UCLA kind of on the next tier uh, you know, if they, if, if all things come together, they can certainly become tournament teams. So not only have those three, uh, let's just scratch Arizona State because we don't know anything about them with the two guys being suspended in China. Uh, that'd be, uh, Ramella White and, and Chaishan Cherry. Um, you, you also are seeing now teams from the, w- without as many expectations, like Stanford, Cal, and Utah, really playing above what we thought their level was. So, that makes a big difference whether they become tournament teams or not because now instead of uh, – let's just look at the – use the Huskies as an example. When the Huskies go to a place like Stanford, if this is to continue, we have six to seven more really important, crucial weeks of non-conference play that will really set the tone for what these conference games mean in terms of resume. But if, but if it continues to trend this way, we saw a lot of great signs in the first week. A game at Stanford where they might be ranked in like the 50s or 60s suddenly is now a quadrant one opportunity for the Huskies. Whereas in previous years, they might be in the low 100s to mid 100s, maybe not even be a quadrant two opportunity. So a lot of that adds up. Um, I know a lot of this, uh, it sounds kind of crazy, but it, it really is the way, uh, a committee that is tasked with co- uh, covering 32 conferences looks at it. And, um, everything that happens here in November, December shapes what it actually the, the conference games will mean in terms of that large bid. And right now, for all intents and purposes, it definitely looks like a potential to be up to five or more bids um, if this continues. So these games in November really matter to the committee. 
um, for setting that baseline going forward for the rest of the year. Right. So the, the way the committee looks at it is we don't care when the game happened. It's all part of your body of work equally. So if the game happened March 1st or if it happened December 1st, it's an equal representation of your complete body of work. So if your body works 30 games, that one night, that one performance, it should be equal to the next night's performance. And taking that entire, you know, outlook and putting it in uh, perspective at the end of the year, that's how it's looked at. So, you know, there are cir- circumstances from time to time where an injury plays in. Like we saw with Notre Dame a couple of years ago, they almost miraculously got in because, uh, the injury to their star player, but um, th- those are some pretty unique circumstances. So what does a loss like you uh, Kentucky taking to Evansville do for their resume? Because, I mean, you think about uh, Kentucky in that game, they win that game nine and a half times out of ten. Um, what about right. that loss? What does that do for them uh, long term? Right. So it yeah, it's a good question. So if, if Kentucky was in a position like Gonzaga where they played in a weak conference and their non-conference had a lot more weight on it, which for Gonzaga, for example, they have a lot of weight on their non-conference because they just don't get as many opportunities in their league, it would be a pretty big blow. Um, it would be hard for them to get back up to the number one or two seed line. For Kentucky, they don't have those kind of problems. They got teams like Florida, Auburn, LSU, Ole Miss, Arkansas, Tennessee, I mean, there is a loaded amount of quality opportunities in the SEC, chances to get quality road wins. I mean, by the end of the year, they can make that loss fairly even noticeable. Um, so they'll be fine. And that's why Calipari, I don't think, completely lost his cool. I think he knows that. Veteran coaches know uh, what it takes to, to get into the tournament based on where their league stands. And so it's um, if, if everything – if they write the ship the way I think most people expect them to – It'll just be a blip on the radar, and it won't impact them very much. Right, just because they have so many winnable games in that in that quadrant, first quadrant. Right, exactly. So by the end of the year, we're going to know what the Kentucky story is, and if they go 15 and three in the SEC and they blow out half the league during that 15 and three, we're like, this is a damn good team, and that was just a bad night for them, right? But if you're right. but if you're Gonzaga, if you're Gonzaga, and if Gonzaga loses to Evansville at home. And then you only get, the, you know, maybe two more chances at big-time games. And, the, you know, maybe they win them, maybe they don't, and they're close. We still aren't sure how good Gonzaga is, right? Then they go to the WCC, and if use that same example, they blow everybody out the WCC, everybody's still going to be circling that Evansville home loss and being like, well, they didn't do much out of the conference, so let's conservatively seed them lower because we just don't have that evidence. And that's the kind of thing that happened to, like, Nevada and Buffalo, even to a degree Wofford last year, um, a lot of committee people were hard-pressed to put them higher than the sixth line. I think Nevada and Buffalo both ended up as six seeds, and, and Wofford ended up as seven seed. It's just a lot tougher when you don't have as many opportunities, which is unfair, but it's just the, the nature of the beast. Yeah, and, you know, that that's the thing, though. I mean, it, it makes sense. The more teams you play, that was – I go over to football a little bit. You look at Boise State when they lost to Nevada when Peterson was there. Um, right. That loss cemented them staying out of any sort of. I think at the time it would have been a. It, it would, he would have had been a top two team. Um, so uh, it, it's just the nature of the game, and and I think that most fans understand that, and 
And I think, you know, I think back to even Tuesday night when Washington had trouble with Mount St. Mary's. Um, they were still able to come out with a 10-point win, so that's kind of my assumption is that'll look fine on the resume. But the panic meter with Washington fans shouldn't be high in a game where there's probably some lapse in energy because of the uh, emotional win from earlier that week. Correct. Yeah, I think in the, in the grand scheme of things, a ten point lead, uh, ten point win over Mount St. Mary's, even even a four point win, if, if the Huskies ultimately reach their potential by the end of the year, and uh, you know, uh, God willing, the Pac-12 continues on this amazing start that they've had. There's actually going to be more opportunities than people thought coming into the year. My, one of my biggest concerns coming into the year, uh, as far as UW goes, is they didn't schedule any true road games for non-conference play. They're Three biggest non-conference games are a home game against Gonzaga, and the neutral game that they got the big win over Baylor at in Alaska, and of course the one coming up Saturday in Toronto against Tennessee. Um, and hopefully, uh, if it all shakes out in Hawaii, they'll get a chance to play Houston. I, d- I do think Houston's a pretty darn good team, and uh, I would predict that have to happen in the championship game. Um, but besides those four, I mean, there's really, and even those, the fourth one's not a guarantee, so. Um, I don't know that Washington's going to come up with that great of a non-conference uh, rating in terms of strength of schedule. So it's really, really extra important uh, uh, for uh, for two things, to get get a couple of these wins out of the three, uh, or at least they got the one, and then continue to root for Pac-12 teams to, to stay on this track because that will provide a lot more opportunity to get into the tournament later. Awesome. And what are some uh, non-Blue Bud teams that our listeners should keep their eye on this year? Yeah, no, that's a that's an interesting question. So when you ask that, are you asking to win the championship or just more so to get to the tournament? or Maybe some teams that could make some noise in the tournament. Maybe not teams that could win the tournament, but, you know, what? maybe some of those mid-level teams that could make a Sweet 16 Elite Eight run. Yeah, um, I would say... You know, there's a, there's some teams that uh, were debated pretty heavily uh, non-conference-wise in, in my world. I'm sorry, off-season-wise. And um, the teams I really like coming into the year, I mentioned Houston. Um, I like what Kermit Davis is uh, putting together down at Ole Miss. They have two amazing guards. Uh, they, they have a big man that came in from junior college, uh, Kadeem C. And, you know, he proved himself to be an amazing coach at Middle Tennessee. So it's only a matter of time once you have the players at Ole Miss, and I think he's got enough this year coming off of a tournament appearance last year to make some noise. I also think the track record of Bob Huggins over at West Virginia um, and, and the talent he has coming in to add on to some guys that took some lumps last year uh, shows uh, a good bounce-back year for the Mountaineers. So they, they're a team to keep an eye on for sure. And then if you're looking more like small conference-wise, I really like this team out of Vermont. Anthony Lamb is probably the best small conference player. A lot of big schools, um, including rumored to be Washington, and there's no confirmation of that. We're really trying to get him to transfer over because he had already got his degree last year. He decided to stay. And Vermont's actually got a couple up transfers from uh, Power 5 programs to, to transfer to them. So they've got a lot of experience, good team to keep your eye on throughout the year. They should dominate their league. Another team like that um, is – the East Tennessee State squad, uh, who made a lot of noise last year, got a lot of guys back. Uh, we saw what SoCon produced last year with 
with not only Wofford dominating and getting a seven seed in the tournament, but also teams like Furman and UNC Greensboro very close to making the tournament as an at-large. Um, I think you can look at East Tennessee State as maybe that front runner this year and Furman being pretty competitive again. So if you're looking for some major sleepers, I just keep those in your back pocket. Awesome. Um, well, this is your opportunity to uh, promote yourself. Where are you on social media? Any other places that you exist? This is your time. Thanks, Trevor. So, yeah, my Twitter handle is at RoccoMiller8. My website is Bracketeer.org. Uh, Bracketeer, just like it sounds, B-R-A-C-K-E-T-E-E-R.org. And on the website, you'll find bracket projections. They'll, they'll really crank up starting in January, so nothing urgent. But you'll see all my preseason materials in there. I also covered Pac-12 Media Day. Um, each week, I do a Teams of the Week feature, which is a national feature that incorporates all 32 conferences and gives shout-outs for uh, teams that really uh, superseded their expectations for the week. Um, so that's always a pretty interesting piece to keep your eye on. Washington was mentioned in the first week. Um, and I also travel to about two to three games a, um, a week on average. Uh, tonight I've, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. I was at the Villanova Ohio State game. And, uh, yeah, so, so, so please follow along and, uh, go dogs.